My name's Bob Kleber. I'm a paediatrician. I also work as the Director of Strategy, Research and Innovation at a place called Imperial College Healthcare, NHS Trust. It's a big uh, trust um, in the west part of London um, in the UK. And uh, I have a very fun role uh, juggling uh, that exec role with my clinical duties as well. The, the kind of introduction to this is maybe thinking about what's happening here in you know 2021 we've got this global pandemic we've got huge international displacement of populations we've got trauma we've got poverty we've got discrimination we've got inequalities why is kindness so important in in that context so in in lots of ways one of my reflections is that it's completely crazy that it's taken a global pandemic for people to recognize that um the relationships between people that how we make each other feel by how we behave uh, and therefore things like behaviors like kindness being right at the heart of it um shouldn't be front and central to everything we do anyway so there's a bit of bafflement uh, in my mind about why it's taken a global pandemic to to remind people of that and to be fair uh, there are many pockets of uh, of people and organisations that have been quite forward thinking, have really tried to sort of put this front and central. But undoubtedly, as your question suggests, there's a, uh, there's been a sort of bit of a trigger around this in the sense that, uh, and you've used the w- word trauma, I think, you know, there are uh, hundreds of millions of people, probably billions of people across the globe who in different ways uh, have been very profoundly traumatised by the events of the last year and a half. And uh, really, in my mind, the only way for us to heal as a, as a, as a society, as populations, as countries, as, as a globe is uh, to think really hard about how we relate to each other and to look after each other in, in a way um, that I... I would argue society and uh, humankind uh, um, thrives on. And that's about uh, looking out for each other. That's about really thinking hard about things that we are doing that can help make the people we interact with feel better. And it really is as simple as that. And as a paediatrician, I sort of you know, spend a lot of time with children. In lots of ways, children are brilliantly good at this. And they just, they don't overcomplicate things like us adults. And of course, children can be unkind. But largely speaking, their, their natural way is to, is to try and help and try and look after each other. And that's what we've got to try and get back to. I guess one of the things that we've got here is um, in a kind of quality improvement context, you have this sort of tendency to, not you personally, but we as a kind of you know group, have a, have a tendency to want to create a system, want to create a process. And, you know, in the, in the case of kindness, it's a movement. We want to create a movement in order to action this stuff. Um, when it's such a fundamental thing like kindness, how can you do that? How can you turn it into a movement? So... I guess this link between kindness and quality improvement is worth really sort of pausing and exploring. So I guess a couple of things come together for me. The first is a reflection that um, the work on quality improvement over the last 30 odd years has been hugely important and in lots of ways has gained very significant ground in healthcare. Um, But for me, it's often been over technical Uh, It's been framed in language that's not been particularly accessible and it hasn't paid enough attention 
to I guess what I would call the psychology of change the 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 people side of things this is about really yes there are processes that need to happen around it yes we need to measure and measure over time and all the stuff that uh, you know me and everybody listening has will have learned and practiced and probably got over bogged down in um, and not paid enough attention to the people the relational side of things building trust building relationships that's the best way to get stuff done by an absolute mile the biggest success you'll have in improving something is through building relationships and trust. In fact, good luck to you trying to improve stuff or make change happen if you don't do that. So I think that's been quite missing in lots of ways. And so thinking about uh, things we can do, things we can practice, things we can get better at um, to help us on that journey, I think is key. So in a way, the movement for kindness, one of the words that's one of my favourite words, and I, I try and put central to sort of who I am and what I've done in my career and what I'm going to do going forward, and that's the word learn. You can learn to get better at this stuff. You can be reflective and thoughtful. And, uh, you know, I hope I started off, you know, reasonably kind. And uh, these conversations are brilliant because they make you reflect and think about times where you, where I haven't done that as well as I might, where I haven't listened as well as I might, where I haven't created quite the right conditions for other people around me to thrive. So undoubtedly, in my mind, the more one thinks about this and talks about this, the better one can get at it and, and the more that can trigger other people to think about things. So I think when I think about the movement, in a way, it sounds a very fancy word. Really, this is about having conversations with people. This is about... Um, it almost arguing out why this is a really important topic of conversation, while this is an important action for us, and uh, trying to inspire people to say, look, this is something that can make a massive difference. You make more of a difference with this than practically anyone, anything else any, any of the rest of us can do. And who's the audience? When you're, when you're talking at conferences or when you're kind of doing this sort of work, who do you feel in organisations, in healthcare organisations, is the audience for your message primarily? And obviously you're going to say everyone, but who do you think is going to make the biggest difference if they get this stuff? Yeah, well, great question. And yeah, and, and in a, <laughs> everyone's often the answer to these sorts of questions. And I think that's, you know, perhaps sometimes disingenuous sometimes. Um, if I'm allowed to, I'm going to really argue hard that it, it, it really is everyone here. Um, I, I, I will, I'll think hard about, about other specific people. But the reason why I, I, I think everyone has a stake in this is the single biggest thing that we can all can control and influence is how we behave, whoever we are, whatever age we're at, whatever job we're at. We really can get up every morning and have very significant influence in how we behave now there may be other factors that make that hard and make that difficult for us um, but fundamentally we have really you know if not total control really significant control and influence around how we behave and whoever we are and I think the thing about kindness is it really plays out in all directions yes I'm sure the chief executive of an organization or the senior leader in an organization them being unkind can have really significant ripples that go very far but very fundamentally uh, whoever you are, whoever you hold the door open for and smile at, whoever you uh, say a really big thank you to, to whoever you just listen to a little bit more, I think it can have that interaction. So it's a very, in some ways, it's very non-hierarchical uh, behaviour that has, I think, huge impact. So I, I, I really would, I'd argue that hard. That said, where you have 
uh, senior leaders in organisations, in systems, who are really putting this out as the most important thing. So I think the shift for me is I've always thought this was really important and tried to talk about it and do stuff around it. I guess I made a pretty conscious decision two or three years ago to say, you know what, this is the most important thing. Uh, This is absolutely the fundamental starting point for how you deliver high quality, safe healthcare. If you don't have this, if you don't have kindness as as a condition, as a prevailing condition, you've got very little chance of delivering high quality care. And so I think that's been the slight pivot for me. And uh, and I think perhaps for other senior leaders as well, there are people thinking pretty hard about that and, uh, and trying to find the words and the ways and the behaviours to really put that front and central. So tell us about what you've done in your organisation to kind of create the conditions within which it's possible for everyone from the senior consultant to the porter to be kind. Well, um, first thing to say is a long way to go. Uh, So um, I think uh, that uh, acknowledgement that this is a process of continuous learning and continuous improving will be the first uh, absolute deep thing to say. So, you know, anyone who thinks they can fix this stuff overnight. Um, The second bit is actually the link between kindness and improvement. So uh, at Imperial, I was lucky enough to be asked to set up an improvement team and a a quality improvement program about six years ago with the the aim on the driver diagram was to create a culture of continuous improvement. And I uh, had great fun telling the board that would take 20 years. And they all looked at me slightly baffled. I said, look, I'm completely serious. It'll take 20 years. And so six years into that journey, we're uh, making some really good progress, but uh, we're, you know, less than a third of the the way along the journey. And um, one significant uh, piece of work was that we built that on some work we did with staff to really co-produce our our values and behaviours in the trust. Now, what's interesting is we asked six years ago the question, what are the things that really matter to you? So this wonderful movement, what matters to you, which, uh, you know, I've been a great privilege to learn lots from uh, through the quality improvement community who uh, I'm, I'm lucky enough to uh, learn from and be part of. I sort of realised we'd been asking that question in our values work uh, around six years ago. We hadn't quite quite framed it like that. But that was wonderful because we had about 2,000 staff in small groups from all over the organisation who told us about the things that really mattered to them. And absolute number one, top of the list, was kindness. So one of our four values which uh, we've been running with since uh, 2014, is kind. And I think a reflection about three, four years ago of a way to try and accelerate that was to move on from talking about values, but to really try and frame it around behaviours. So we started to articulate what are kind behaviours that we would like to see or we'd expect to see? What are kind behaviours that we'd absolutely love to see, uh, you know, on a really good day? And what are some of the unkind behaviours we won't accept? And in some ways, it seems a bit ridiculous. You have to sort of spell that stuff out. But it's actually been a really fruitful thing to do. And it gives one a bit of a framework by which to encourage people, by which to uh in a way measure people's performance and indeed to um stand up to them and challenge them where they've been unkind so kindness is definitely a a topic of conversation and we're in a big traditional uk teaching hospital which historically uh the sorts of places that have not done very well um around culture and around flattened hierarchies and psychological safety so i think 
you know, a, a long way for us to go still, but uh, it's quite fun and exciting being part of a, of a movement like this where you can really feel and see this making a, making a palpable difference. I'm really interested in how applicable those approaches are to different groups within your staff population. You know, so if you think about, I don't know, a nurse or a head of HR or, you know, all the different sorts of people, you've got these kind of cliches, haven't you, about people, you know, obviously nurses are kind, that's what nursing's all about. And, you know, what are, what are psychiatrists like or what are surgeons like, you know? Can you apply the same kind of approach? Have you found it, you know, more challenging with some groups than others? So it's a brilliant question. And, of course, these stereotypes are, are so lazy, aren't they? And we, we grow up with them, they're real. Um, but they're, they're, in lots of ways, they're rarely helpful. I'm drawn to the conversation six years ago where... There was some debate about whether we were talking about kindness or whether we were talking about compassion. And it got into an interesting discussion because it felt as if the clinical staff absolutely had opportunities to be compassionate. And I think, again, interesting cultural stuff. Six years ago, there was a, a wide acknowledgement that you could absolutely could be and should be compassionate towards patients and their families. But could you be compassionate towards each other as a colleague? Question mark. Well, I'd argue you could, but I guess that was a minority view around there. And people felt kindness was a, was a more helpful uh, and accessible uh, value and behaviour because you really could be kind. You could be kind to a stranger or you could be kind to your family at home or you could be kind to a patient or you could be kind to your colleague who's more senior than you or who's more junior to you. And It just sort of worked like that. So I think, interestingly, those on kindness, those stereotypes of there are certain types of people or professions or gender or take take your pick that are more kind than others. It hasn't really been an issue uh, around stuff. What's interesting is you find the same sort of proportions of people who are passionate about this and who want to stand up around it and the same proportions of people who are unkind, I think, across different groups, across you know, staff groups, across different cultures and it's a very transcultural uh, work and one of the things that's been fascinating about this being quite a global movement and uh, the the wonderful uh, people who've joined in the fun and games around this on um, previous forums we've been on and indeed looking forward to to other forums across the world is um, we've had people from 24 different countries involved in this movement so far and uh, you know really everybody welcome so keep uh, let's uh, let's put a put a one in front of that number it, it, it really seems to work very, it translates really well. And in as as the wonderful world we live in, in, in slightly different ways, but uh, that's been really interesting. And I had, we had no intention of saying, right, we're going to start a global movement. This was a conversation and among some people who were trying to sense make. And the more this conversation goes on, the more you realise it's got legs. So you've done this session at the, the the UK, the European Quality Forum Conference in June. You've got sessions coming up for the Australasia one, for the Asia one. Tell us a bit about how that, that kind of translation work is going to happen, what you're going to be doing at those other events. It's got a really lovely story, this, because we, in the planning for the... Um, for the event. In fact, we originally were meant to be doing this last year, just as the pandemic struck in uh, in Copenhagen. And um, it got moved 
a virtually and b bumped by six months to uh, to November 2020. And in the planning for that event, we uh, the group of us, seven of us from uh, from the UK, from Sweden, from the US, um, started to thought, well, oh, this is we you know we're running a workshop. We need to plan this properly. So about three four months before it, we started to meet virtually. And just the way diaries worked, we put in a in the three different time zones. We put in a sort of early evening on a Thursday UK time for an hour, and we put it in for the three months that preceded the conference to plan our workshop. And we were having great conversations, and we were starting to sketch out what felt like quite a good workshop. And um, we got into a question of what is one of the outcomes we want to achieve out of this, and what do we want people to go away with after spending ninety minutes with us, and um. We came up with this idea that a key bit would be to keep the conversation going. So an outcome of you coming and being part of our workshop was to go and have this conversation locally and keep it going. And then I came up with the idea, I said, well, look, we've had such fun meeting. Why don't we keep meeting after the conference every month on this hourly, uh, you know, it's an hour, to be honest. And, and then let's open it. Let's just see anyone can join in. And if it's only the seven of us, we'll have a wonderful time and we'll learn lots. And if anyone else wants to join in, you know, we're all lovely, sort of generous, open people. That'd be great. And uh, the first one in December after the conference, we had something like 57 people join in. And uh, really that sort of kicked off this sense of movement. And we've met every month since with 40, 50, 60 people. And then we had uh, the second European Forum, which was meant to be in London, but was again virtual uh, in June that you've just mentioned. So what's rather wonderful about that is uh, that's created a real sense of momentum about this. So as we're planning um, for both Asia and uh, Australasia in, uh, in the autumn, in September and November, um, I think there's two things in mind. There's one is about uh, continuing to sort of build momentum around this uh, with a sense of openness, with a sense of continuing learning, um, but also wanting to try to find lovely routes for people who've not yet been involved to come and get involved and to not feel like the train's left the station. And uh, so I've been doing some thought about that. And I think particularly is trying to ground this locally. So whilst we've got a fantastic gang of people who'll come and run a really good workshop uh, in the uh, Australasian and Asian uh, forums, what we're going to do is get a couple of people who really know the local environment to come and be part of that workshop with us and help do some of the planning. Um, because I think um, trying to ground things in, you know, what is, what are the, the Australasian Forum thinking about and worrying about uh, at the moment more than anything. Clearly, COVID and uh, the pandemic has been an absolute global phenomenon like one we've never had. But there are probably some local flavours that we need to tune into a bit more. And how better to do that than getting some local voice? So that's the plan. And I guess the final thing to say is, you know, no idea where this is going. <laughs> it doesn't doesn't matter too much, really. I think the trick is to do, do the work in a spirit of openness, a spirit of learning and a spirit of kindness. I'm interested in how you kind of take this theme and make it cross-cutting in, in relation to the event, in relation to the conference. And the conference is an ongoing thing. So I was talking to Don Goldman and Amar Shah in one of the other podcasts about equity and co-production and how we can make the Quality Forum a more equitable event. And they said, you know, involve people from the community and get them doing talks and, you know, make it more diverse. How does kindness apply, do you think, to the forum? 
how can we make the event itself a kinder event? What a good question. Uh, I mean, interesting. I mean, you've mentioned the word equity. That would have been where I would have would have gone. And I think historically, these sorts of events have really struggled to be equitable. Uh, I think for lots of reasons. I think, being honest, we've just not given it enough thought, and we've not made it a big enough priority. Uh, so I think there's something really worth thinking really hard about that. And it's difficult because they have to, you know, they have a, a sort of commercial viability and those models are often not uh, not equitable in the way they've been set up. So I think that requires some real invention. I, I do think the sort of the virtual world has um, given us some really significant opportunities to think quite differently about that. Uh, clearly issues around digital inclusion um you know we're grappling with those uh, locally in london uh, with our patients and we, we've got to think really carefully about that but what it does do is open up the world much more to much more collaboration and collaborative learning you know i would love to have had more time to travel to south america or travel to africa or travel to asia to go and do improvement work with local communities in a way that that may help and support them. And indeed, I would learn bucket loads from has always been difficult in the context of, uh, you know, very full time job here, the virtual world opens that sort of stuff up in a a bit more. So I think um, it's perhaps worth us thinking about um, how uh, it's, it's this question around open. Uh, and I was having a lovely conversation with uh, um, friends and colleagues uh, within the IHI about their open school. And, uh, you know, where does that go in the future? And I said, Let's just have a play on the word open. How do you really, really make something open? Um, and I think uh, that would be where I would go. So I, I would head on the inclusion side of things uh, in a really, really big way. Uh, and and in a sense, a measure of kindness would be um, a forum that is genuinely really, really open for all sorts of people to come and experiment and learn and feel feel that they were welcome, feel that they were part of something. And it, it you know, g- generally the f- the forum's always been very, very good at that. But the day we think we're all you know perfectly nailed, the being friendly and inclusive sort of piece uh, is probably the time we should all stop. Mm-hmm.